How would the way that you care for someone change if I told you that God cares more about how you treat people than how you treat him? Let me just kind of reiterate that in the form of a question to you. Can we truly love God and ignore our fellow man? In the Old Testament, God had established 613 different laws which had become known as the laws of Moses because he gave them to Moses to tell the people. 613 laws that were recorded so that we'd have a better way of knowing how to honor God and how to better respect our fellow man. 613. Did you know that on record at the federal level of our government, there are more than 300,000 written laws? Actually, really no one knows how many laws are on the books at the federal level. Uh, there's just 20,000 laws or more concerning just the, 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 the laws that go along with gun ownership. There are so many laws that right now someone had quipped that we all probably are breaking the law and don't even know it. And yet in the land of the free, God actually had less laws than, than our government. He was just saying, look, I'm going to give you some guidelines how to keep your life free from getting in the ditch. Just head down this road if you would. And it's not about do's and don'ts. It's just a matter of how you best honor me and how you best can respect other people. But wouldn't you know it, man had the first question to God about those laws, the question that some of us still have, and that is, God, what's the minimum that I can do? Like the least, I'm, you know, what can I get away with on that? Uh, God knew our selfish pursuits, so he knew that we would just have this desire to take the path of least resistance. There was a study that came out at the beginning of this year from the University College of London, and it had a study about human behavior. The main headline that came out from that study said, humans are hardwired to take the easy way out. We're hardwired to go for the low-hanging fruit. We're hardwired to take the easiest path. So the question that that, that God was getting in the Old Testament, and even Jesus God was. But what's the bare minimum thing I have to do? What, what does that look like? And I think that's why Jesus, when he talked to people for the first time in the beginning of his ministry, he dealt with that issue head on. Because he's dealing with a bunch of people that said, God, if I do this, that will honor you. If I don't do that, that will respect people. The do's and don'ts, the 613. God, just tell me. What's easiest, and I'll get it done. And so Jesus says, look, I, I haven't come so that you can drive down easy street. I've come so that you could, you could drive down the narrow road. And he, he raised the standard. That's what Jesus has done. He's raised the standard. That's what this sermon series is all about, is that we start living up to that standard that Jesus has raised, that we no longer take the path of least resistance, that we walk the hard road. And today we're going to learn how to do that when it comes to the way in which we care for one another. And you remember the teaching that Jesus had in the Sermon on the Mount? He, he taught it like this. He said, let's go to the law, one of those 613. He said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus says, that's easy street, not to stick a knife in someone's back. That's easy street. And so he says, you want to know what the narrow road looks like? Here's what he says about the narrow road. He says, but I'll tell you that anyone who's angry with their brother or sister is t will be subject to ju the same judgment. And so he equates that the judgment that one will receive for an actual physical murder will be the same judgment that someone will receive just by being angry with a brother or sister internally within their heart. Jesus says, see, that's the narrow road. How about this teaching? When Jesus looked to a group of 
those that just knew the law. And he had said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Old Testament laws. And we just say, well, that's easy street, right? Just don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to bring you down the narrow road now. I want to raise the standard. Everybody can do that. He says, uh, I'll tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I've raised the standard here. Now, that's, that's the narrow road. That's harder to get done. That's tough stuff. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Jesus teaches a crowd of people and he is really showing them something new. And then this guy comes on the scene and he's, he wants to question Jesus. He wants to ask Jesus, Jesus, what's the minimum that we can do? It's a question that God knew we were going to have from the ages, from the moment we had fallen. Mark chapter 12, let's look at verse 28 and following. In my scriptures in the Bible that I have in front of me, the the title says the greatest commandment. Starting in verse 28, Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Did you hear how that guy was described? Did you see his title? What was his title? He was a teacher of what? Teacher of the law. Now the law was put into place so that we could better honor God, so that we could better respect people. And this teacher of the law, who knew the 613 laws, says, would you make this easy street, Jesus? Make, just boil it down. 613 is way too much to remember. Would you just boil it down? What's the, what's the commandments that just sum it all up? Give me the cliff notes. So Jesus says in verse 29, oh, the most important one. Okay. And he goes right back to the law, Deuteronomy 6. He's quoting here. Is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all, let's just read it together, shall we? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Continue on. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's wild. Jesus says, look, if you, if you want to get life right, if you want to get everything in order in your world, okay, set aside. Set aside 611 of those. If you want to really honor God, you really want to respect people, you, let's just boil it down. If you want to boil it down because that's your nature, that's your behavior, fine, here it is. You love God and you love people. And if you can get those two things right, then you can get everything in this world right. The, the world will change. Your household will change. Your, your job will change. The, the way that you have an attitude towards this world will change. The way that you have an attitude towards your children and towards your spouse, it will all change. The way that you view your parents, it will change. If you can just start by loving God and loving people, and that sounds so easy, but the problem is you define love. No, I'm saying you define it based on what you know about it. You get to define it. If Jesus gives us no definition, then any definition is going to suffice what you believe is love. And I've seen and heard some pretty outlandish ideas of what love is, haven't you? So, Jesus, would you just narrow it down for me? And so why don't we go back to Jesus? And in the visible Jesus, we can see an invisible God. And we can learn about God's love by looking at the example of Jesus. Let's look at it first like this. Jesus Jesus commanded love. Now, it seems so strange that he could command it because we know that love can't be legislated. You can't command someone to love. You've got to have a desire within your heart to love somebody. It can't be forced. I think for us to understand love, we have to first have experienced love. And I think within that lies the real tragedy about you and I. 
is the love that we've experienced, whether that's been from a parent or from, from what we've seen in a movie or what we've read in a book, it, it hasn't been at its purest level. It's maybe been at a heightened level, but it hasn't been in its purest level. It's been an incomplete kind of love. It hasn't been the greatest of perfect love. And I think, honestly, the reason why some of us really struggle in the relationship area, and it's more, um, uh, uh, more turmoil than it is calm waters, is because of the love that we've experienced. We're just, we're just reciprocating what we know, and it's, it hasn't been something good. And Jesus gives us this command. Here's the command, John 13. He says, look, I'll just, I'll just, let's just do away with all those laws that taught you how to honor God and respect people. And, and let's just put this one into place, plug and play, a new commandment I give you. What's the commandment? Let's say it out loud. Love one another. Again, if Jesus just stopped there, it would be about your version of love. It would be about how you've experienced it, how you've seen it, how you've read about it. So Jesus defines it, which I love because he just doesn't let us try to navigate the waters by ourselves. He's our compass. And he goes on and he completes this and he says, let's read it together loud again. As I have loved you, so you must love another. So how do we love? We, we love by looking at Jesus and figuring out how he did it and putting that into place and saying, that's the purest form of love. We experience that kind of love so that we can show that kind of love to others that are in our world. And the commandment is not just to love. Friends, the commandment really is to know love so that you can show love. That's the commandment here. See, you can't love the one beside you until you first received the Savior who has died for you. And once you've experienced that, you can experience the greatest, purest, most complete kind of love, and that could be reciprocated. Jesus commanded love by saying, I'm the definition of love. Look to me if you want to get it right. But I think secondly, Jesus' love was clear. He didn't have an agenda. He didn't try to manipulate people to get his way. He didn't try to, to love people so that they would follow after him only. His love was genuine. Uh, he wasn't keeping score. You ever kept score in a relationship? I have these internal conversations that my wife doesn't know I have um, until right now. And so I'll say things like in my head, I mowed the lawn. You can clean the house. I'm keeping score. Or I just bought you a new outfit. I'm going to buy some new tools next weekend. There's an agenda. Or I watched the kids last night. Tonight, it's your night. And we play this little game of, well, it's like love. It's kind of love. But it has, a, it has a, a motivation behind it. And it's not pure. There's an agenda. Jesus didn't love that way. He just loved because it was his nature to love. This is just who he was. He just didn't think of it as an agenda. There was one group of people that came to Jesus. They were the, the religious scholars of the day. And they questioned Jesus about the way that he showed compassion towards others. And, and they, they thought this was something that they could really stick him with. And he said, he eats with publicans and sinners. That's a way to say he eats with the trash of society. He eats with those that no one wants. He eats with the, the, the chronically ill who were discarded in that day. He eats with the tax collectors who were hated and despised. He eats with the prostitutes. He eats with those that steal he eats with those that God would never, ever eat with. 
Jesus' love was clear. He had nothing to gain from that. He just wanted to say, no, God does eat with these kinds of people. He loves these kinds of people. You may not, but he does. How about when Jesus stood between a woman that was caught in the act of adultery and the men that were there that held stones in their hand, ready to kill her by throwing those stones until she died, had legal right. Jesus, it's forbidden in the law of Moses. They were right. And Jesus has this courageous act, and he stands in between them, and, and he doesn't say, over my dead body. No, he just says to them, what? Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And he has this incredible act of love, not just the standing in the gap to protect her from death, but then he says in love, go now and leave your life of sin. Who was he winning over there? Not the crowd. Maybe not the woman. He had hard truths for both of them. How about, how about the time when Jesus ran into a young man that was very wealthy and successful, and he was struggling with a moral dilemma? Do I take that narrow road that Jesus talks about, or do I take easy street? And Jesus says, have you kept all the commandments? And the guy says, every single one of them. I've kept all 613. Jesus, the scriptures say, looked at him and loved him. It means his heart was broken. His heart was broken for this guy because he wanted so much more for him. And Jesus had, in his words, a sense of love by saying, you know, your extreme wealth is keeping you from following me. You're going to have to do the hard task of selling everything you own and giving it to the poor. Where was Jesus' agenda in that? Well, his love was, was clear. He's saying, my heart breaks for you. You want God, but you're not willing to take the necessary steps. So let me tell you something in truth mixed with love because my heart breaks for you. Here's what you're going to have to do. Jesus' love was pure. It was clean. It had no false motives. Here's, here's another thing about his love as we look at, to his example on how to do this better. Jesus' love was compassionate. This is huge. He never lacked passion for people. His compassion for others caused him to slow down. It caused him to stop. It caused him to put aside his own desires. In the Gospel of Mark, there is a a story in Mark chapter 10, if you'll turn there, about a guy that was pushed aside out of society. He sits outside the gates of the city of Jericho, and there are thousands of people inside of that city that could have helped him. But they just didn't have the compassion. Their heart didn't break for his plight. And they pushed him out thinking that he was a nuisance, but they knew his name. His name was Bartimaeus, and he was blind, so he was left begging. Now, if someone had compassion, he wouldn't be on the side of the road. He'd be in someone's house. He'd have his own room. He'd be taken care of. But that wasn't the case. They just knew him as the beggar that was the nuisance, and so they sat him aside. Mark chapter 10, let's look at Starting in verse 47, this guy recognizes that Jesus is coming by and he has a chance at having his needs met. He has a chance of having someone to really care for him in a pure and honest way. And here's what he says. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, what did the crowd do in verse 48? They rebuked him. They told him, quiet. But he shouted all the more. Notice the the lack of compassion of the crowd. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, Jesus stopped. He just, don't you think Jesus had someplace to be? Don't, don't you think he had something on his day calendar to be in? He's actually on his way to Jerusalem to go give his life for the sins of the world. And yet this guy beckons him and Jesus says, you're important. 
I'm going to stop for you. No one in Jericho thought you were important, but you're important to God. And he stopped and he called to him, so they called to the blind man. Okay, cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. He came to Jesus. What, what do you want me to do for, for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, which means teacher, I want, I want to see. <laughs> Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately, because that's how miracles happen, immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. When others all passed by blind Bart, their heart didn't break like Jesus' heart broke. They just saw him as a nuisance. They knew his name. They knew his plight. They knew his problem. They knew his pains. They knew his anguish. They knew what he needed, but they just left him alone. They probably came up with every excuse in the world. Why not to help? But not Jesus. Jesus said, there's a need. I'm going to meet the need. My heart breaks. I have compassion. You know what compassion is? It's your pain in my heart. That's what compassion is. And you know what compassion will do? Compassion will take you further than you thought you would go. It would take you to places you never thought you would go to. It will have you meeting people you never, ever dreamt of ever knowing. It will just take you to places that you just never anticipated. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Some of you are like, oh yeah, of course it's hate. It's not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Just, I see your need and I'm not going to do anything about it. I see you're hurting, but I'm not going to take care of it. It's insensitivity to the hurts and to the needs of others. And compassion, what it does, it breaks us free from a life of apathy. And if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that Jesus, when he runs into a crowd of people, his heart breaks and it says things like he had mercy on the crowd. It'll say things like he, he had compassion for them and he stops what he's doing and he begins to minister to them. You see, the compassion of Jesus wasn't just a a broken heart for a person's plight. The compassion of Jesus was, I'm going to stop and meet their needs right now. I'm the one that's going to help them right now. Friends, love that's just talked about is set by the wayside. But love that is demonstrated is irresistible. And we're not just talking love. We're showing love in a tangible way. Husbands, I, I know that your wife probably knows that you would die for her, but does she know that you'll do the laundry for her? That's going to get me in trouble because I'm going to be doing the laundry for like a straight month, I know, because of that statement. It has to become tangible. Compassion leads us to action. Apathy leads us to inaction. Here's another way Jesus loved, and that was a committed kind of love. He, he didn't just stop loving someone because he wasn't feeling the love back. One of the human traits that we have, and let's just admit it, is that we love those that love us. We love those that love us. It's just easier, right? Because because we take the path of least resistance. We go towards the low-hanging fruit. But when Jesus was betrayed by a close friend by the name of Judas, remember him? His heart was broken with disappointment. And even though Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, uh, that didn't change his outlook about Judas. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't get angry with Judas. No, his heart broke that he'd be betrayed by someone whom he loved. How about when Peter denied him on the night when Jesus needed him? Three times, Peter said, I, I don't know who Jesus is. I mean, these guys are like best friends. Most of us would say, well, guess what? That ends relationship. I'm not taking your texts. I'm not taking your calls. If I see you on aisle four of the grocery store, I'm walking down aisle five. That's just the way it's going to be from now on. No, Jesus, Jesus sees Peter for the first time, and he doesn't wait Peter for, 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 for Peter to come to him. Jesus immediately just says, look, Peter, I love you, and I forgive you. And you know how many times he did that? Three times. Peter, you denied me three times, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you I love you, and I forgive you three times. 
Jesus is telling Peter, no hard feelings here. I'm not holding it against you. I'm committed to this relationship, brother. Some of you in this room, you have this feeling that when, when you have sinned against God, when you've done something that is wrong, and you know it in your heart of hearts, that God has pushed you aside and says, I'm done with you. I'm just done with you. Um, and you, you, you equate it like this because Satan plays with this kind of stuff. And you say, well, I haven't honored God. Why would God honor me? Why would he? But that's not the way God works because he's committed. He's committed to you. God is totally committed to this relationship that he wants with you. I mean, actually, he's worked on this relationship since the beginning of time so he could have it with you. And the scriptures say that he's patient with you. I mean, just he wants you to come to your senses about him and recognizing that he's committed to this. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, God's being patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to be lost, but he wants all people to change their hearts and their lives. He's just saying, I'm waiting here, which patience is an act of love, isn't it? And he says, uh, when, when you finally discover that I'm committed to you, that it's not about you, it's about me. I'm just waiting. Let me give you something to think about this week. And maybe this will be something that will be mind-blowing for some of you that have been Christians for a very long time. It's just, your head might explode here. Maybe being a Christian, maybe being a Christian is not primarily about my commitment to God. But maybe it's more about me accepting God's commitment to me. Let me say it like this. There's nothing that you can do right now for God to love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. He's committed to you. Look, 1 John chapter 4, you could go through that whole scripture sometime and you could read about all about God's love. Let's just take a little snippet of it. Verse 19 of that chapter. We love because why? Why do we love? Because he did what? He first loved us. He made the commitment first. He took the embarrassment out of it. You know where he stood. He said, I'm committed to you. How about verse 16 of that same chapter? We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. What did we do? We've come to know it. We had an intellectual understanding of God's love, but then we had a, a change of heart too. We started to believe of what Christ has done for us. And we, we knew and believed what God had done for us. We, we recognize he's committed to us. Friends, when someone's committed to you, you don't need to do anything for them to love you. They just love you because they're committed to you. You can't push them away or you can't be cast aside. They're committed. Max Licato, who's a popular Christian author, he put God's commitment to us like this. He said, God loves you simply because he has chosen to do so. He loves you when you don't feel lovely. He loves you when no one else loves you. Others may abandon you, divorce you, ignore you, but God will always love you, no matter what. So Christianity is not about doing more to get more of God's love. It's about receiving what has been done for you. See, religion says, earn, earn. You're earning God's love. Christ says, no, no, believe, believe that God's committed to you first. Religion says, do, do more to earn God's love. No, Christ says, it's already been done. There's nothing you can do. I'm already committed to you. And maybe being a Christian is not primarily about your commitment to God, but accepting God's commitment to you. God, I recognize you've gone to great lengths to love me through Jesus, and I accept that. I know it, and I believe it. How about 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, this is love. Oh, we're going to get a definition here. 
Not that we love God. Oh, not about our commitment. God, it's not about my commitment. No, no. It's not about that you love God. Because not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's what it's about. And that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which brings us into like the best representation of what Jesus' love was really about and how we can apply it to our lives. And that is, Jesus' love was costly. It, was, it cost him something. If you want to know the extent of how much someone loves you, you look at how much they're sacrificing for you. Because love is not easy. And there's got to be a sacrifice, a giving, with no taking kind of sacrifice. And there is no higher cost than the cross. Friends, I know that we think of the cross, we think about the pain and the anguish that happened physically. Certainly that was there with the torture that happened before the nails were ever pierced into his hands and feet. There was pain and anguish. But think about the spiritual implications of that day. The spiritual implications of Jesus who is perfect taking on the imperfection of our sins. There was a great exchange that happened that day. Second Corinthians talks about it. It says it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, the great exchange. And there was so much hurt in a physical sense, but there was a tremendous amount of more hurt in a very spiritual sense that God put the wrong that we had done on someone who had never done wrong. Ephesians 5 will help us understand this in a greater way. Turn with me to Ephesians 5, a New Testament book in the Apostle Paul had wrote this to the church of Ephesus. And what he's doing is he's setting it up because he wants, he wants the church of Ephesus to be more Christ-like. Not to do more for God, but to live like Christ lived. So he has this plea, which is like really a plea for us because this is the foundational verse of this series. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Look at it there with me. Ephesians 5 verse 1. It says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's four things there. Quickly, I want you to recognize. Number, number one is this. Christ's sacrifice was costly. He gave himself up so that you could gain something. It was lopsided. Do you see that? Sacrifice is lopsided. He, look, some of you think marriage is 50-50. That's not at all how the Bible describes marriage. You know how the Bible describes marriage? Men start sacrificing for the wife, and she will respond to that sacrifice. Like Christ sacrificed for the church, and the church will start responding to the sacrifice. Second, notice that it cost him something. What it cost him? It cost him himself. He didn't give out of his riches. He gave the only thing he had, the one and only Jesus, he gave of himself. Third, he sacrificed himself to people that can never return the favor. Do you catch that? We can't return the favor. I know we give an offering. We're not trying to outgive God. That's not what we're trying. We're just saying thank you to God. We owe you our lives, but even our lives won't do anything because there's not enough value in them to what Christ has brought to us. Here's the, here's the fourth thing. Jesus' sacrifice was a, was a fragrant offering to God. Now, don't misread that. God wasn't happy that his son died. He wasn't enjoying the fact that his son died. What he was saying is, he was so pleased with the way in which Jesus showed you love that he went to the great, the greatest of sacrifices, his own life. And God said, I'm pleased with that. I'm pleased with the way my son showed my other children how much 
he loves them. You know, my kids don't show too much love in, in our house. They just don't. They just don't. I don't know if it's the age. I don't know if it's because they don't maybe see it within us. I don't know why it is. But anytime that I can, I, I've, I've witnessed them, one tell the other sorry without being prompted by a parent and then go in for a hug. Oh man, that makes my heart like a flutter. You know, my, the, the buttons on my shirt about popping off with pride. It's only happened once, but I'm, I'm telling you what, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And I know God was so proud of his son to watch him sacrifice for you and me and say, that's how you love, that's how you do it right there. Not expecting any, just, just because you love people, you're gonna sacrifice. So here's what I want us to walk away with. Let's look at Ephesians 5 and a different translation. Imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Imitate God. Now he's gonna tell us how to imitate. Live a life filled with love. That's how you imitate God. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. We just learned about the example of Christ. He commanded it. It's clear. He was compassionate. He's committed. It was costly. We know those things in a knowledge form. How do we put these things into life form? How do we make these applicable today? Let me challenge you in four ways to do this. Let me challenge you four ways in which you can start loving other people. Just pay attention to the people that are around you. Just pay attention to some people. Get out of your phone. Get out of yourself. Get out of your own world. Just start looking. It doesn't take much time to figure out that a coworker's in stress, right? Doesn't take much. Doesn't take, doesn't take all, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that your spouse is in a melancholy mood. It, it doesn't, take, doesn't take anybody with high intellect to realize when their child feels like a failure. It just doesn't take, it doesn't take much. This past week, I was at my first leadership meeting. I haven't been at one in 120 days. I mean, that was nice to not be at one, but I got back into it and I realized, man, these, these leadership meetings are tough. There are challenges that this church faces on the horizon as we grow. It's just, there are so many difficulties that go along with it. They're always positive meetings, but my, my head is exhausted. You ever feel, my body was doing fine. My, my mental state was just exhausted. And I got home and my wife immediately says, hey, one of your good friends' is grandma's in the hospital and he just ran to the hospital and, and uh, she gave me the full status of her situation and um, I just thought okay well you know I'll, I'll get into bed here and I'll get comfortable and I'll send out a text message to my buddy let him know I'm praying for him and praying for her and, and as soon as I sent that text message out I'm all comfy in bed he sends me back the reply I mean like immediately it says uh, she, she already passed away and I laid there for a moment I had this debate you know the debate right like do I call uh, it's late do I give them space? Do I go? And I had all these reasons, like, you know, I'm comfortable right now. Uh, I'm in my underwear right now. I, I mean, why should I? And, and knowing that I was thinking like the most apathetic kinds of things, I questioned my conscience and I said, Kelly, <laughs> do you think I should give him a call? And without thought, she said, you know, when your dad died, People called you in the middle of the night and they didn't care if you were resting or what you were doing. They just wanted to let you know that they loved you. So I grabbed the phone and I prayed with my friend. I said, I love you because I had been shown that kind of love before. I've experienced it and that was the least I could do unto him. Pay attention to the needs around you. Listen to the inflection in people's voices. Pay attention to their language, the depression, Maybe you can offer a listening ear, a quick prayer, a word of help, a lending of your hand. Apathy notices and doesn't do 
anything. Love requires us to act. Here's another challenge to you. Care for your family and your faith family, this church family. You know, we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. And when some of you walked in, I said, hey, brother, hey, sister. I'm your, I'm your brother whether you like me or not, okay? This is, this is the way God places it. And we need to start learning to love. God says, if you want the world to know that you're my disciples, would you just start loving each other? You know, some of you in this room, you're the only family I, I've got. I'm a transplant. I don't have them close by. Some of you look at that way. Some of you are like, I got tons of family. Well, the Bible says it doesn't matter if you got tons of family or faith family. Just take care of each other. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. Back then, widows were ostracized. They were just kind of set aside. Let's just put anybody there that is lonely, anybody there that doesn't have anybody. Let's just say that. But if she has children or grandchildren, if she has, she's bonded by blood, that, that's their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. And you say, but I don't like my parents or this is the way my parents showed me love and it wasn't very high. It wasn't a great standard of love. God says, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you being, you being Jesus to them, not them being Jesus to you. We're talking about you being committed to them, whether they're committed to you or not. We're talking about you being compassionate to them, whether they're compassionate to you or not. You get where we're at on this? Family is so hard to love sometimes, aren't they? Those that we're bonded to blood with. And start caring for your family. Start caring for your church family. First Timothy chapter five, verse eight, gives us this power that has to pierce our heart. It says anyone who does not provide for their relatives, those who you're bonded in blood with, and especially for their, house, their own household, like your immediate family, you, you've denied the faith and what's worse, you're worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's like, that's harsh talk. That's as, that's as piercing as you're going to get right there. Do you see the incredible challenge that Jesus presents to us, God presents to us, of taking care of family and taking care of our church family together? That, that right here in this room, you can show love to each other. And, and in your own household, you can demonstrate, you can demonstrate the, the example of Jesus Christ. I'm challenging you to do that. Here's the third thing I'm challenging you to do, to help others in their pain even when you're in pain. My wife would be the first one to tell you that I'm the most self-centered person when I start to get sick. I mean, I'll call on her for just about everything. I don't know if it's in the human nature of man to do that, but it's a natural response, I think, to be selfish when we're sick, to say, look, I have pain. Let me get my due time. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 gives us some insight on how our mode of thinking should change, though, as Christian people, as followers of Christ. When we're in pain, how we should look at others' pain. It says, since Christ suffered while he was in, the, in his body, since he suffered while he was in his body, strengthen yourself with the same way of thinking Christ had. Now, that lends itself to the question, what kind of thinking did Christ have when he was suffering in the body? Let me just give you uh, three things he was thinking that I'm aware of when he was on the cross, dying a horrific death. Let me give you three. Number one, he was concerned about the repentive thief, wasn't he? He was concerned about a guy that was wondering, am I going to heaven or hell uh, after I bleed out here? And he's moments away from it. And Jesus could have said, you know what? You're on your own. I've got other pains and problems. No, Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he calmed that man's spiritual soul and he gave him assurance of heaven. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't thinking just of himself. He was thinking about others. How about when he looked down at the crowd? I'm a crowd that, you know, you'd just be spitting back because they've been spitting on you. And Jesus says, no, no, Father, Remember what he says? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
He wasn't thinking about him. He's thinking about those that are in the crowd that will one day have regret for what they've done. That soldier that looked and said, surely this was the son of God. He's thinking about that guy in that moment. Or how about when he looked and he saw his mom standing by the cross and his best friend, John. He says, John, would you take my mom and, and you, be a, you be a son to her. You love her because I'm not going to be with her. And in that moment of, of hurt and pain, He was thinking more of Mary than he was thinking about his own misery. I'm challenging all of us here to help others in their pain, even though you're in pain, just like Christ did. Fourth, here's the fourth challenge, that you love even when you're you're not shown love in return. You love because it's your nature to love. You've experienced love from Christ. You love even though you're not gonna gain anything. You love even when you're not gonna experience love back. You love just as Christ loves you. Today, some of you in this room, you've never, you've never accepted Jesus. You've thought about him. You've gave him some consideration, but you've never accepted that complete form of love. God is absolutely committed to you. And he's just waiting for you to accept that he's committed to you. Accept. And that acceptance comes by believing in Jesus, not just knowing, but knowing and believing in Jesus. Because when you can do that, you're able to then understand the extent of the love that he's given to you like the forgiveness of sins the grace that he gives to you even though you don't deserve it you can now start showing that same kind of grace to people in your world a grace to people that don't deserve it a forgiveness to people that have never even asked for it you can you can start doing that because you've experienced that you can start loving your enemy yeah you can yeah you can start loving those that hate you that don't want you around, that every time they look at you, they're appalled by who you are. And you can do that because at one point, God looked at you and he loved you. And even though you were enemies with him, you didn't know it, but you just weren't accepting it. You were denying him. God said, I'm still sustaining you. I'm still loving you. I'm still committed to you. And once you recognize that, once you know that and believe that, that's gonna change the way in which you love other people. That's gonna stick with you so that you can love your enemy as you love yourself. And then you'll recognize Jesus was sent to you. When he is, you stop your rebellion. You accept Christ's love. You be set free from sin and you start loving others. And let me tell you what this sermon boils down to, this line right here. You start loving others and guess what you start doing? You start honoring God. When you start loving others, what do you start doing? You start honoring God. And that's the greatest thing that you can do. Love God. Love people. Would you stand with me? And if you want to give your life to Christ today, if you want to know what it means.